I am excited tonight to be sharing with you out of, uh, we're going to start in 1 Peter. I'm super excited about this message tonight, uh, which typically means that I talk really fast. Um, and I always talk fast. When I get excited, I talk even faster. Uh, I talked about Mary Lou. Uh, you told me I talk faster English than anybody else you've ever heard. Um, so if I get to talking fast, it's because I'm excited, but just tell me to slow down. Um, man, I just, this message is fantastic, and, uh, and it's just really good. Uh, several months ago, we went as a church through this uh, gospel presentation series called Three Circle. Anybody remember doing Three Circle? Three Circle was fantastic. It was a very easy way to share the gospel with somebody who's never heard of the gospel before. Uh, it was also a neat way to, uh, it was packaged in a really neat way where you could get it, understand it very quickly, and turn around and share it with somebody else. Um, the reason that we did that was that the elders, Tim, Casey, myself, really thought that it was valuable that every single person learn how to share the gospel. I believe that every believer needs to have the ability to share the gospel. I think that every person ought to be able to do it. Now, if you ask people what the gospel is, uh, most people will literally say, um, I think if you ask the average Christian in the church across America, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be saved, and when we die, we go to heaven. And it's not a un, that's true. It's, that's a, a reality of the gospel. But what that doesn't do is give you the depth of what the gospel really is. Um, the gospel is so much deeper, so much more than that. And I believe that every believer in detail should be able to share the gospel. Now, if I called you up right now, would you be able to stand here and share the gospel with everybody? I believe that every believer should be able to do that just like that. We'd be able to share the gospel right there. Now, there are probably a couple of you here who would like, who could do it, but when you stood up here, we'd get really nervous and we would mess you up. I'm not worried about that side of it. I don't, I'm not worried about you giving a presentation in front of a big audience. But to a person one-on-one, can you drop the gospel just like that? Can you deliver the gospel with great clarity, with great power, with great confidence? I believe that as a believer, you should be able to do all those things as you share the gospel. Secondly, as a believer, do you know how the gospel has benefited you? Do you know what the gospel has accomplished in your life? Do you know who you are? Because of the gospel. I believe that we should answer that question very, just as easily. We need to know who we are because of what the gospel has done in our life. We have to be able to, to share those things if we desire to live those things out. But a lot of believers can't even share those things, so we know that they're not going to be a reality in their life. Let's look at a verse out of the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 to get into some of these ideas about who we are in the gospel. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and it reads like this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do we know who we are because of the gospel? The scripture tells us that we are a chosen race. We have been chosen by God. And if you look at these verses, what we'll learn is, is a couple of things. One of them is that this is spoken to a plural. This is talking to the church. This is who the church is. And I believe that God's primary way of working is through the church, not in an individual's life outside of the church, but is to the church and what he's shaping the church to be. He is prepping the bride to be ready for Christ. And so he is getting the group ready. He's getting the people ready. I do some pictures at a wedding 
uh, and I did one for a friend a while back, and we were talking about what pictures do you want. And uh, one of the, uh, the girls, the, the, the bride, looks at me and she goes, when I step out from hid, being hidden and I step out into the room for the first time, I don't want the camera on me. I want you to have the camera on my soon-to-be husband, on my fiancé, and I want, to, I want you to capture his expression when I come into the room. She had been preparing herself for her wedding, and she had pulled, picked out her dress, she had her makeup done, she had her hair all done, and she had been working hard to make herself presentable as look good as she possibly could for her husband, for her fiancé. And she wanted to capture the joy on her fiancé's face when she walked in the room. We are the body of Christ being prepared for Jesus. And we need to put the same amount of intentional effort into being ready when Jesus comes. Now, what are we? We're a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, who was the one who had access to God? The priest. So when the people wanted to go to God, they had to go through the priest. And now, through the death of Christ and because of the gospel, we as the body are a royal priesthood. And as individuals, we have, so what does that mean? We have access to God. As individuals and the body, we can talk to God and we don't have to go through the priest. Man, what a great news. We are a holy nation. We, are, we have a special purpose, and we're called out, and we're going to look different than the world. The world is not setting the standards that we live by. God is. We are a people for his own possession. One translation says that we are a people for a special possession. What, are we, what, what does that mean? We're special to him. When I was growing up, when I was two, I got this blanket, and this is my special blanket. My blanket is named Orangey, and it is absolutely fantastic. I've had it for so long that I wore holes in it. Uh, my mom had to sew the holes up. I'd drag it around like I was Linus. I had that blanket everywhere. And uh, I wore it so thin, my mom had to fold it in half and sew it together. And it's always been my, I always love having blankets when I'm sitting around the house. And so I had this blanket, and one day some friends came over. A girl that I was dating came over, and several friends. We put on a movie, and so we got some blankets out, and I pulled my orange blanket out. It's only big enough to cover me and nobody else. So I'm sitting there by myself with my blanket. And she's like, what's this? Because, you know, it looks kind of ratty and old. I'm like, this is my blanket. This is my special blanket. Its name is Orangey, and I love it very much. And, you know, I'm holding my blanket, and, you know, it gets time for her to go home, and she's talking to me, and she's like, can I take it home with me? No. <laughs> time out. No, you cannot take this blanket home. This is my blanket, and it is special to me. I'll give you my jacket. I'll give you a necklace of mine. I'll give you something that smells like me, my pillow, whatever you like, but you are not taking my blanket home. This blanket means a lot to me. You cannot have it. The reality is that when this relationship ends, I'm making sure I have this blanket. This blanket means more to me than you do. A little harsh. I didn't say that out loud to her, you know, because I'm not a jerk. I, but I did tell her, you were not taking my blanket home. She dumped me. I still have my blanket. I'm good with that. Some things last long. I have the blanket now to this day. My wife mocks me for it. She's mean, man. Kelly, you're mean. Now, what does this mean? We're, we're some, like, that blanket was special to me, man. I, I, I do not treat it and give it out and it's not up for grabs. That's mine. God treats us the same way. We are his. He's not treating us like we have no value. He is going to protect us because we belong to him and we've been bought with a price. He paid a high price for us. So he's not going to treat us like we are common. So knowing who we are, it, it helps solidify that we now have a purpose. What is our purpose? Our purpose is that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We have a purpose now to tell the world about God, to share with the, this man. There's so much going on these days. People are marching. People are struggling. Before everything happened, people were still struggling, and now it's just bigger than it was before. The, the world is hurting, and we have hope, and we need to proclaim that hope. We have to share with the world what we have found and what they are searching for, even if they don't know that is what they're actually searching for. It goes on in verse 10 to tell us, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's kind of self-explanatory. We now have mercy and now we're God's people. But the verse actually is so much deeper than that. And to explore the depths of that, we have to back up into the Old Testament to the prophet Hosea. Um, there's no little, last service there was tons of little kids around, so I had to clarify what I was talking about. Um, it uses the word whore a lot in this passage. Um, in, the, uh, in different translations, it, it translates it different ways. Um, one of them is, uh, uh, what's the word I said earlier? Um, say what it, it, well, it means promiscuous, but the other word they use for translating it, um, it's another word for, anyway, whatever it is. I forget it now. It's unimportant. I was going to pick a different word for this word, whore, uh, but the word is what the ESV translated. Uh, and, and some people would say that it means prostitute. What it really means is promiscuous. Um, and so as Hosea married a woman, um, I don't believe that when he was marrying her, he married a prostitute. He married a woman that became promiscuous. And so we'll get into that a little bit, but because there's not a bunch of kids around, I don't mind saying the word a lot. We're going to pick up in Hosea chapter 1 and start in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have the children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay. It just went deep fast right there. And it, didn't, it, it, it was it's strong language, but it's painting a picture that needs strong language. So it's not for any reason. So, we, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, she became, or, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will have no mercy, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord called his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So if you pull out your bulletins, there's some blanks that are in there, and the first three are Gomer's kids. They are Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. That is their name. That sounds like some really weird names. Like, who's going to name their child No Mercy? And who's going to name their child Not My People? We have a new daughter, and her name is The Lord Has Answered Me. But we don't go around saying her name is The Lord Has Answered Me because that just sounds kind of weird. Her name is Eliana, but Eliana means The Lord Has Answered Me. So he uses the break in the words El for God and Anna. So Eliana means that The Lord Has Answered Me, right? So their names were no mercy and not my people. When they would have been called by those names, it would have been called by what the equivalent of that language would have been. Uh, but the names literally mean that, and the people who knew the language would have known what, that word, what the names meant. So it would have been a weird name, but it would have been more poetic. 
So he has three kids. Gomer has three kids, Jezreel, No Mercy, and Not My People. Notice that we said Gomer has three kids. Look back at the passage, and what do you notice about the announcements of the son's coming? It says the first one that Gomer and Hosea had a child, and in the last two children it says that she conceived and bore a son. So what does that mean? That was not his baby. If they would have went on Mari, homeboy would have been disappointed. The baby is not yours. She was running around on him, so she became promiscuous. She became the whoredom that they talked about, and, and she ran around on him. And he did not have, it wasn't his kid. I mean, that's just what it boils down to. Now, let's keep on going. We'll pick up in verse chapter 2 and pick up from there. Or uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and, uh, and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will also have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her past. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in this time and my wine in this season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sights of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her, all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bells. And uh, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Woo! This got serious quick, didn't it? Basically, if I were to sum this up, judgment's coming. All the names of her kids were judgment names. And at this point right here, judgment is going to come, and she has no ground to stand on. All of her sins will be right there before her, and she has nothing to say for them. There's nothing she can do to make it right. She has a judgment coming, and she deserves that judgment. But who's talking right here in Hosea 2? Is it Hosea talking or is it God talking? Yes, I think it's both. Gomer is being talked to by Hosea. Hosea is talking to Gomer and God's talking to Israel. Judgment is coming and you've messed up so bad you had nothing. There's no hope for you. There's no hope. You can say nothing. You will be completely exposed and laid bare before God. Nothing you've ever done will be hidden. And you have to give an account for all of those things. But in the midst of this judgment, one thing that we see is that God was still pursuing her in the midst of what was going on. 
she thought that her, her, the person she was cheating on, the one she was being promiscuous with, was giving her things. But all along, verse 8 says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for different purposes. God was still pursuing her when she was out there doing the things she shouldn't have been doing. And she didn't recognize it. And God said, I'm taking that back too. I'm taking it all back. Man. We're in that position before God. We are in that position before God where all the things that we have done are standing in front of God and there's nothing we can say. There's nothing we can do. There's no price that we can pay. There's no judge that we can bribe. There's no more good than bad that we can do to make this right. We stand before God hopeless with the judgment coming. And there's nothing. Let's pick up in verse 14. There's a but right here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bell. For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. There's no hope for Israel. There's no hope for Gomer. And there's no hope for us. But God steps into the picture and changes things. God steps into the picture and pours out mercy on Israel. What does he do? He does three things that are in your bulletin that I'm going to fill in for you. Number one, it says God woos us tenderly. God woos us tenderly. We all love to be wooed. Especially ladies love to be wooed. You love when your husband comes in or your man comes in with flowers or says sweet things to you. I think a lot of men have luck wooing women if they play a guitar. There's a lot of musicians who play a guitar who have much more beautiful wives than they are. I'm not going to call Andrew out on this one. Um, Instead, I'm going to call my friend out, Porkchop. Uh, I have a friend named Porkchop. His name is Mike Pope. He's been here. He's played some music for us before. Um... You know, Mike has these beautiful blue eyes and a fantastic smile. Other than that, that man is ugly. That man, that man is ugly. Um, he's goofy looking. He is goofy. He's a great guy. That man is ugly. His wife is gorgeous. His wife is beautiful. That man plays the guitar. That's all I can say. He has wooed her somehow and has got a woman much more beautiful than him. I love poor child. I'm not making fun of him. I've had this conversation to his face. Um, He's goofy, I'm goofy, you know, whatever. His wife was wooed by him. He's a nice guy. I mean, he's really like a super great guy, um, one of the best guys I know. And uh, he's wooed her. That's how, probably how I got Kelly, too. I'm, I stand here guilty as charged, right? I somehow wooed Kelly and convinced her to marry me. I'm in the same boat. It's just more fun and easy to point on, pick on pork chop than me, right? 
we love to be wooed. We love to be made feel special. We love to be talked to in a way where we know we're going to be received. And God comes to us and he says that he speaks to her tenderly in a language we know that will be accepted. If somebody comes in, and if this is your situation and there's no hope, and somebody comes in bashing you, are you going to receive it or put your guard up? God knows how to speak to us right where we're at. And he's going to woo us tenderly. The second one says God promises hope and safety. God promises hope and safety. Verse 18 says that he will make us lie down in safety. Man, we all want to feel like we're in control because we want to feel safe. But the reality is that there's, we control it as illusion. We're not in control. God is in control. And he, in his control, he is promising us that we will be safe. And that's a big deal to a lot of people. God is promising us hope, and he is promising us safety. And lastly, it says God grants a fresh start. I got these three points from John Piper, and uh, he said the third one in a, in a much different way, but I changed it. Um, and, and he got us in. He's giving us a fresh start. Where do we get that from? It says that he's going to betroth us. He says it three different times and, and has different things backing it up. What he's basically saying is, look, we're going to start over. We're starting over. All these things that you've done that I am right to hold against you, I'm not going to hold those things against you. If you've ever had a relationship, you've had a fight with somebody. It's just how relationships work. There's, you've had some kind of rubbing up against each other, right? And, and, and when you work through that, you're always holding something back when you enter back into that relationship. If somebody steals something from you and you allow them back into your house, I've had a relationship with some teenagers, right? They hung out my house, and, uh, and when they came out, and they'd been going through, I went and took a shower, and when I got out, they were holding things that were in my drawers in my bedroom. And I'm like, mm, hold on. And I was like, that's, that's not right. right. So we had a problem with each other. And we had a conversation, don't do this, guys. And so did I kick them out of my house forever? No. I let them stay in my house. And I put a lock on my bedroom door. They were not going to go into my room if I wasn't there. So I let them back in. We worked through that, but I had some reservation right there. If you have a relationship with somebody and you tell them a secret, and they go and, and rat you out and tell somebody about it, if you tell them a, a deep secret and they share that deep information with somebody, that's hurtful. And so as you restore that relationship, when you come back together, you're cautious about what you're going to give the information to them next time. You're not going to share your deep, dark secrets because you're guarding that. And that's not necessarily wrong. I'm not putting that down. But we understand the idea that when we come back together, we have reservations in our relationship. All right? God is looking at us when we've done all the wrong and he's done none of the wrong. We come back to God. God comes back to us. He makes things right and he is holding nothing back from us. He's holding nothing back from us. The relationship that we enter back into is one where he's pouring all of who he is into us. Man, what a beautiful picture of who God is. I'm not that way. You, 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 you do something wrong to me when we come back. I'm going to fight to come back together. But I'm going to hold back from you. I'm not going to lie. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should at some situations. I don't know. But what's clear is I'm not God. God approaches this in a different way than we do. A lot of us view God like we view our parents. We mess up against our parents. We do things that we know we're going to get punished for. And so we don't want to take it to God. We don't want to take it to our parents because we don't know how they're going to respond. 
So I do something wrong against my dad. When he finds out, I'm toting away. I'm getting a whooping when he comes home. I know that's coming because I was stupid. And sometimes I will hold back because I don't want that judgment on me. Or I don't know what the punishment is going to be, so I'll stay away from it. And we approach God with the same mindset. God's not that way. God is revealing right here how he is going to respond to us in our sin. Not just one sin, but the whole, the wholeness of our sin. All that we've done stacked up together. What's he going to do? He's going to woo us tenderly. He's going to speak a language that will make us feel special. He's going to give us hope and safety. He's going to give us a fresh start. Who doesn't love the idea of a fresh start? What does it go on to say? Picking up in verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have no mercy. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You see what's happening here? The thing that defines us, the judgment we carry, the judgment that were in these names that we deserved. No mercy on you. Not, you are not mine. You do not belong to me. It was a deserved judgment. And God is saying, I'm changing it. That's who you were, but I'm doing something different. I'm making you into something you were not. You are going to be a new creation, we learn in the New Testament. Where's the picture of that? I'm not going to go through all of this again. I'm going to look back to one spot where it says, um, um, I forgot it, a core. Ooh, where's that verse at? I lost it for a second. Here we go. Verse 15. It says, And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. What's Accor? Accor was a, was a valley, and it was a valley of judgment. Why? God had called the people out of slavery, given them the promised land. They went into battle with somebody. God said, Do not take a thing of theirs. Burn it all. They're a wicked people. Burn it all. And Achan goes in and steals some of the gold takes it back to his tent, digs a hole, and buries it up under his sleeping spot. God had given them everything. Took them out of slavery after they plead and cried out to God. They go into the promised land where they've got everything. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. What more do you need? And he steals something he shouldn't have taken. The place, instead of it being a great place, became a place of judgment. So God is saying right here, I'm going to take a place of judgment, and I'm going to transform it into a door of hope. I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. The way you see things, the way things are, I'm going to flip them upside down. I'm going to completely transform what is going on right now. And this is the gospel. We stand before God deserving a judgment and anything that could be said about us, we are guilty. And there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say. We are guilty. And God, God enters the picture. In this scenario, Jesus comes in and dies on the cross so that instead of us being judged, God was judged. Jesus was judged. 
Instead of us taking the judgment, Jesus takes that death on the cross in our place so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be restored and reconciled to God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. A lot of people view the gospel as somebody being a pretty decent person. People aren't decent. People are dead in their sins. Dead in their sins and trespasses. They don't just need polishing up. We don't need sharpening to make them look a little bit better. Let's give them a nice shirt and tie and, and tell them to stop cussing. He'll be, he'll be good. No. We're filthy. Dead. Full of sin. Defined by sin. Enslaved to sin. No choice but to sin and keep sinning. And God is saying, I'm going to bring you out of that and give you new life. I'm going to rip out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to transform you into a new creation. You will not be the same thing that you once were. You are something brand new now. That's the gospel. God met us right when we were, right where we are, when we were hopeless, and makes us into a new creation. What a beautiful God we serve. We don't deserve it. He meets us right there. So how do we respond? The believer must, in the bottom section, number one, the believer must have a deep understanding of the gospel. Far too many of us, our views of the gospel is shallow, super shallow. Jesus died for us so we don't have to go to hell and we one day go to heaven. Those aren't wrong. But that's a four or five-year-old's understanding of the gospel. That's not a mature believer's understanding of the gospel. As a mature believer, we have to understand who we once were to understand the goodness of what God actually did for us. And we have to understand what we've become. Because we understand those things, we can look back at where the world is without the gospel and know how to respond to it. The believer must have a deep understanding of the gospel. You should be able to come up here right now and share the gospel with the people that are out here. We have to know it. Number two, we need an understanding of the change that the gospel brings. As a believer in Christ, I'm no longer the person I used to be. Who am I? I am justified in his sight. I'm made right. I'm, man, this is an illustration Tim gave me years ago when I was 18 or 19 that stuck with me. When God looks down and sees me, I'm horrible. I'm not a good person, right? I'm not. I believe that I was because people told me I was for a long time, but the standard that we were judging on wasn't Jesus. It was the people around me. So I thought that I was okay. So when God looks down and sees me, he will cast a strong judgment that I deserve. But when I am in Jesus, when God looks down to where I'm at, he doesn't see me. All he sees is Jesus. So the judgment that he cast down says, this man is okay with me because he's not seeing me, he's seeing Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture when you're in Christ. I'm still horrible, but he sees Jesus. I am reconciled. I am made right with God. I mean, this word reconcile, we understand what it means. If I were to walk up and just lay my hand back and give Carson five fingers to the face, Rah! no, I feel like I'm smack Carson pretty good. If I do that on Monday and I go to Carson on Tuesday, what's up, Carson? Give me a big hug. How's Carson going to feel? Ah, Cause slow down. Yesterday you smacked me. Things are not right between us. We are not friends right now. 
Carson's probably more gracious than I am and would probably give me the hug. But for that relationship to come back together, there has to be reconciliation. There's problems between me and God. And through the death of Jesus on the cross, I am reconciled. I am restored to God. There was a division between God and I. And through the death of Jesus and my accepting of that, I'm, me and God are right, right back together. We are reconciled. I am forgiven. I am sanctified. I am set free. The gospel has done these things in my life. I'm set free from the bondage of sin and set free from the consequences of sin. When I was a sinner, I had no choice but to sin, and now I can live and press into a holy life, seeking after the Father. As an unbeliever, I was bound to sin. Spend some time this week seeking out what has the gospel accomplished in your life. The scripture is full of these things, and this is a very small list of a lot of things that God has done. Because a lot of times we're living in struggle where God has already given us the answer. God has revealed to us through his word who we are as believers, and we haven't sought that information out yet, so we don't know. We don't know. Understand the change that the gospel brings. Number three, a personal experience with the gospel. We all need a personal experience with the gospel. It has to be our personal belief. It cannot be our family's belief. It has to be your belief. Not only do we need a personal belief, but we is it a personal experience? We need a transformation, personal transformation. The gospel should be regularly changing us, and we have to live into that, press into that. We're not who we once were, and God is shaping us into the image of his son, and we need a personal experience with that, where the gospel doesn't just save our souls, but it's changing our character. It's changing how we think. It's changing how we act. We need a personal experience with it. We also need a personal longing and desire for it. There's a lot more of these things that I'm talking about. These are just a couple I'm bringing out. We have to have a personal longing. A lot of us, when we hear the word gospel, we kind of step back and go, yeah, I know the gospel. But we've used that word and heard that word so many times, it's not fresh to us anymore. And a lot of times when it's talked about, we check out and we don't think anything about it. We don't explore the depths of what it means. It's the very reason that we'll take communion in just a few minutes is that we'll remember what has happened with the gospel. We need a personal experience with the gospel. And lastly, we need to share the gospel. We need to share the gospel with who? With everybody. We need to share the gospel with each other and with the lost. I do not think that the church spends enough time sharing the gospel with each other. What does that mean? We get around as a church and talk about everything else but the gospel. We talk about everything else but what God is doing in our life because of the gospel. The song Andrew sang earlier was, Come Witness the Gospel to Me. Um, this is, I'll show you a picture at home. This is a sign that I had Kathy Riggs. Kathy Riggs, who goes to church with us, she was in the earlier service. Uh, she makes these little signs, and I got her to make one of these for me because I love this idea. In the song that the song is talking about, uh, it's, a, it's a song to the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to share the witness of the gospel to me in my life right now. So it's asking the Spirit, do these things in my life, and go home and look at those words over and over again. It's, 
absolutely fantastic. But this idea is I actually want that to be what we expect from each other also. As a lifestyle, as what we expect out of each other, this is what I want. I want you to witness the gospel to me. I want what you offer me in the times where I'm hurting to be the gospel. I don't want any kind of false hope. And a lot of times that's what we give each other is false hope. Oh, it'll get better or things might not work. You'll get a better job. We offer these kinds of things to people. And there's a lot of things we offer, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. When I was single, everybody and their mother was trying to hook me up with somebody they knew. I didn't want that. I was literally, I didn't date anybody between I was 18 and 23. I didn't go on any date at all. And everybody, well-meaning people were trying to set me up with somebody else. And, and, and for me and my walk, what was happening was I knew God had something specific for me. And what I had pursued when I was 18 wasn't it. And so I needed to pursue after God and not a relationship. And what was happening was people were, well-meaning people were trying to set me up with people that I did not want or need. They were offering me something other than the gospel. It would have been different if I came to him and said, hey, you know anybody you can hook me up with? That's not what I was going for. I was seeking after the Lord, and the answer in that season of my life was, come look for me for what you should want in a relationship. I didn't know what I needed in a relationship. I was looking for uh, a very earthly satisfaction out of a relationship, just a companion. But I didn't need a companion in a person. I needed a person to share the gospel with me. So I dated a couple girls that were stupid. Um, it all ended bad. It was dumb. And I started hanging out with Kelly. And I'd had a conversation with Catherine um, about the stupid girls that I dated or the stupid approach that I had to girls. And most of those relationships were basically, I went into the relationship trying to see what would happen, what would come out of it. And I realized that's really pretty stupid. I know what I want, so why am I entering into a relationship when, um, when I, I know what I want, but I'm going into this relationship to see what might happen, right? And so Catherine and I had a conversation one day where she basically was like, this isn't a very wise approach. She was really nice about it. It was pretty much, Brett, you're stupid. You should do something different. And then I was like, actually, I really want to do something different. So then I started hanging out with Kelly. And uh, we started hanging out a lot. We weren't dating. And, uh, and we were mopping the floor of the warehouse one day. And while we were mopping the floor, some music was playing. And Catherine looked up and she goes, so Brett, I thought this was going to be different. And she was really nice. It was much more subtle and polite and all gentle. And basically she's saying, you're doing the same dumb things that you have before. Are you going to keep going down this road and see what might happen? Are you going to pursue the Lord? What was she doing? In that moment, I really wanted a girlfriend. I wanted to get married. All the other dumb relationships were me pursuing what I thought would fulfill me. In that moment, mopping the floor, she was witnessing the gospel to me. The conviction that I had, the reality that I knew that I should be living in, that seemed to be I wasn't living in, she brought it up. I'm sure it was a hard conversation for her. She's not very confrontational. She's super sweet. But she had a desire for me to have more in my life than just a short-lived thing. The good news was I, the night before, I, I sent Kelly an email. It was like, yeah, I don't want a relationship. <laughs> um, I couldn't say it to her face, so I sent an email. And so I got to share good news with Catherine that day, saying, hey, I don't want to date. Here's why I don't want to date. And I was like, you might not be interested in me, and this might be really weird, but I don't want to go down this road to see what might happen. I want to go down the road that's intentional. But I had friends right there with me, sharing the gospel with me as it plays out in every moment of my life, saying, don't settle for something that's not of God. We have to witness the gospel to 
with each other. We have to. We have to. And we have to witness the gospel to the lost. That was right there in, in uh, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, where it said, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The world is hurting, needs Jesus. And we have the answer. A life centered around the gospel has to first know the gospel in a deep way. It has to have an understanding of what the gospel is trying to do in our life if we will allow God to work in our life. And it has to be personal for us. We have to long for it. This this sign is not because this is a reality for me. It's a sign because I want it to be a reality for me. I want it to be a reality when people come into my house, that the conversations we have are more about this than stupid sports teams and other ways of entertainment. This is a hope and a prayer, not a reality that I've earned. But we have to long for it ourselves. We need a personal experience with it, and we have to share it over and over. One of the books that I read says that every person should hear the gospel every day. The the unbeliever, so they can become a believer, but the believer, so they can live into what God is doing in our lives. And he says, I think it's more important for the believer to hear it every day than for the unbeliever. We need to witness this gospel to each other. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, I need you. Father, I need you now more than the day where I understood salvation and asked for it. God, today I have a better understanding of who I was before you changed me. God, I need your spirit to live this out in me. God, I want you to witness the gospel to me till it's all that I need. It's all that I want. It's all that I desire. Father, likewise, help me to live that way to the people that are around me. The hope that I offer them is only the gospel. Father, give us clarity. Let us see the reality that this world is fading away. It offers no hope. But you offer hope. Help us to understand our guiltiness. Help us understand that we stand no ground and we have nothing to say to you. But help us to see your goodness and your mercy and your grace that you pour out on us so that we can be made right with you. Father, help us to live our life around the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.